Thank you, Walter. Appreciate the scripture reading. If you're with me in that passage in Matthew, this is now as Jesus turns from giving kind of a bare outline of coming events, he begins preaching about our response to those events. And as he does, he somewhat kind of wraps up, ties a little bit of a bow on the end of that discussion and moves forward to the application. All the way through chapter 25, he's dealing with the application of this prophetic word. I think generally speaking, when you start talking about prophecy, people get interested. They want to know what's coming. They, they want to know about the future. They want to know what the Lord has in store. They know that there's controversy, there's debate, there's probably a little bit of fantasy. But then also for the Christian, there's a profound sense of hope. There's a sense of delight that God has got this in control. He knows what he's doing, and he is successfully leading all events towards a right and good end. And so there's this sense of rest that we have as we consider the end time events. <clears throat> so I want to take you to, to verse 32. And, and just to start, as we consider this text, he says, consider the fig tree. And he's going to give an analogy from the fig tree and then teach us how to respond to end time prophecy by saying, hey, learn this lesson. Be aware of what prophecy is intended to accomplish and live in light of that. So let's begin with a word of prayer and just ask the Lord's help again, uh, because this is a challenging text before us. Father in heaven, we ask for help. We recognize that, as uh, the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians, that the word of God is spiritually discerned. It requires the grace of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes. It is a task that those who do not know Christ are incapable of doing without this grace that you alone can give. And so as believers who have the Holy Spirit, we pray once again that you would open our eyes to understand and to rightly apply the word of truth. May it come alive in our hearts, strengthen our faith, and lead us to be more like your son so that you have eternal pleasure from your people. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we consider this text here, the lesson of the fig tree is how he begins. And from this concrete example, he leads us to a prophetic example. Verse 32, from the fig tree... Learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and put out its leaves, you know that summer is near. Okay, so again, simple agricultural analogy. When you begin to see, even in Bakersfield, it'll happen. You begin to see the trees get green buds on them. They begin to flower. They begin to move towards growth. You don't have to be a professional farmer to know spring is coming. It's a, it's a normal conclusion, anyone living in this world with eyes open, not living in the concrete jungle of an inner city, would know when you begin to see leaves get green, spring is here, summer's coming. Now that's the analogy he uses, and verse 33 then he says, so also, moving from the literal tree to this, this framework for prophecy, he says, when you see all these things, you know that he... Speaking of the sun, is near. In other words, the sun's coming is close at hand. At the very gates, he says. And now verse 34, I think uh, one commentary calls this the hardest verse in the whole gospel. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now that word, this generation, 
could be taken, I think there's about eight or nine different ways you could take it. I'm going to just simplify and not go through all of those different ways. Uh, but, but there are a couple primary ways. Let me just suggest to you, one of them is to say, this generation, Jesus is kind of saying, this generation of life here and now, which would refer to Jesus' generation. And perhaps you could extend that 40 years, and some do, to kind of encompass the destruction of Jerusalem timeline. The problem with that is, I think, not only does verse 36 indicate Jesus isn't thinking so precisely, he says no one knows the time, which would be somewhat presumptive if he knows that his return is, is that soon, he would essentially be saying, I do know the time, I just don't know the precise day. I don't think that's the point of Jesus here. Nor have the signs given been something historically that are established. Jesus hasn't come back. He hasn't established his reign. He didn't stand on the Mount of Olives and split it in two like Zechariah prophesies he will. He didn't destroy the nations and, and use his elect angels to gather, excuse me, he uses his angel, angels to gather his elect. Um, so so I, I don't think that interpretation stands true to either the context of the passage nor the actual happenings in terms of history. An, another way, and I think this has a little more, more credibility, I still don't think it's the right way, is to think of generations as a particular group of evil people. As in, you go to the previous chapter, and he's talking about the generation that's destroying all the, the, the witnesses of Christ, and he says, on this generation that crucifies him, all of the blood of the prophets, from Abel all the way to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, will be the blood of the prophets. And so he's talking about this generation in the sense of the type of people who are responsible for rejecting God's prophets. I think the best way to take this, I think it's the context especially that demands it, is to take the idea of generation as in the group of people alive when this begins. Maybe I could say it this way. Those that see the budding fig tree will see it in full bloom. In other words, all of the events from the first signs, all these things, when you see all these things, the people who begin to see all these things will be alive to see them come to their conclusion in the return of the Son of Man. In other words, Jesus is saying the time of fulfillment is actually a very short window in all of human history. We're not talking about eons of suffering. We're not talking about long epics of earthquakes and famines and wars and tribulation followed by the return of the Son of Man. We're talking about something that will, will not even span past a full generation. And in fact, I think if we take Daniel literally, we would assume something along the lines of seven years. I think we ought to be cautious to be totally precise because of at least the flexibility of some of the starting points of how the tribulation begins. But let me give you my framework for understanding this text then. From verses 4 through 14 is the first three and a half years of the tribulation. Revelation 12, Daniel chapter 9 seem to speak to the midpoint of the tribulation period as what verse 15 here in Matthew says is the abomination that, that makes the temple and the worship desolate. That will be followed by three and a half years of intense suffering called the Great Tribulation. Okay, just for those who are tracking, seven years of suffering, the last three and a half are intense, and that's why they're called great. At the end of that time, the Son of Man returns, and all the world will see him, particularly the Jewish nation that is left surviving the onslaught of the Antichrist, 
will look on him whom they've pierced, Zechariah 13, and they will mourn for him, and they will welcome him. And it says in Isaiah 34 and Isaiah 13 that God will go to war against the nations. So those who have surrounded Israel to destroy it, God will go to war against them. Those are the final culminating days of the end of the age. And remember verse 3 of this text. That's what the disciples asked, right? If we go back to verse 3. Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the signs of the coming of the end? End of the end of the age. Excuse me, of your coming and of the end of the age. So then we come to this lesson of the fig tree, and Jesus is kind of summarizing it and saying, hey, we've talked about a lot of things, disciples. Now what you should understand is when you begin to see the signs, when the tree is budding, the end is here. The Son of Man is near. And then he says, and all of these things will happen within that generation's scope of time. Now this is both a blessing, but it also means it's intense. The blessing is, this is we're not talking about long eons of God's wrath being poured out on the earth. We're talking about a narrow time in human history. But because it's narrow, it's going to be concentrated. It's going to be focused. And I think if you're, if you're trying to correlate this with the book of Revelation, this is basically chapter 6 through 19 of the, of the book um, of Revelation that John the Apostle writes. Okay, so what is, what is happening then in these verses is a call to be ready, a call to pay attention. In fact, verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus' prophecy is more secure than creation itself. So when he says something like, my words will not pass away, I think he's urging us not simply to take seriously that this prophecy will come true, but to make sure that we don't soften it, we don't change it, that we secure our hearts to it rather than making it fit what we want, that we submit to the text of Scripture. So let's just kind of wrap up point number one here. The time of suffering is short. The signs show it, and from the beginning of the signs to the end of the age, we have a short window of suffering where God will pour out his wrath. Verse 36, then, Jesus says, but concerning the timing, concerning that day and the hour, no one knows. I think that's one of the reasons why that generation, Jesus cannot be particularly speaking of his generation, because it indicates a knowledge he just has the next verse he doesn't have. He doesn't know that it's in his generation. He doesn't know when the Father is going to send him back to redeem his own. When we look at prophecy in general, I just, I, I just want to add a verse to your consideration. Daniel, as he's finishing up writing his, his book, Jesus refers to it earlier in this text, says that the wise will understand. Listen to this verse, Daniel 12.10. Many will purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined. But the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise understand. And I think that's, that's almost a summary of what Jesus is doing here this morning in this text as we consider it, is that he's calling upon his people to understand that when the end times begin to unravel, when God's wrath begins to be poured out on the unbelieving world, when he begins to move in such a way that those who are his people see the prophecies of Scripture come true, those are generally the responses of believers. But what happens to the wicked? 
Daniel says they go on acting wickedly. There's just this lack of awareness about what Scripture says. Now, when we consider the text following Jesus' words about the fig tree, he's calling upon people to say, pay attention. Pay attention to the fig tree. Look at verse 36 again. No one knows when, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Okay, so if we're looking at the words of Jesus, let's just start with a basic principle that he makes abundantly clear. He is coming back, and here's, here's what he answers in terms of the timing. Who knows? Only the Father. When you, when you go through this passage, verse 36, he says, but concerning the day and that hour, no one knows, not even the angels or the sun. Verse 39, they were unaware. Verse 42, you do not know. Verse 43, if the master of the house had known. The very end, the last phrases of the words, or, or of, that, of that verse. The son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Do you think Jesus is making a clear point here? Who knows when Jesus is coming back? Not you. Right? Like, that's the answer. Not you. Okay, so there's a reason in God's grace that this is the case. Jesus has just certified by heaven and earth itself, this will happen. It will happen. Suddenly, it will happen in a way that doesn't even span a man's life. It's coming uh, excuse me, he is coming, but when is the question the disciples ask? And he gets to the end of that and says, not telling. Can't tell. Only the Father knows. And you might think that God is somehow um, doing this for a purpose that isn't good, and, and of course that would go against his character, but it is good. Let me ask you a question. If you had a high schooler who is preparing for a massive final exam at the end of the school year, would they learn more if you gave them the answer sheet or if you gave them the textbook and they prepared? Who would know more at the end? There's a reason they don't give the answers away because they don't learn. Tests aren't just simply to say, hey, what do you know? Tests are actually given because they're a great instructional tool for learning you tell a kid, hey, you need to know everything in the chapter because this test is going to cover the whole thing, and they have to master the chapter. You give them the 30 questions with answers that are on the test, you know what they know? 30 answers. Some of those kids will just know them in order. They won't even know what the answers are to. It's like true, true, false, false, true. A, D, E, A, C, true, false, false. Like, they won't even know what that's to. 
So when we have the Lord saying, the Father has kept secret, the Son's return, there is divine benevolence in not knowing. There is a goodness for you. And in fact, I think Jesus hints at it a few times in this text. When you consider the one who knows the thief is coming, they don't have to be vigilant. They don't have to be aware and ready. They just have to set their alarm for that moment. And it means they can be lazy and indifferent the whole night except for that one moment of crisis. Look, look at the, the Noah example, and I think it'll help kind of um, pull apart the text a little bit for us all. It says, For as in the days of Noah, right before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying, verse 38, and giving in marriage. Yeah, those are horrible people. What are they thinking? I, I'm saying that tongue-in-cheek. They're eating, they're drinking, and they're getting married. Those are all good things. Just in case you're, this is not like these are horrible human beings. How dare they sin by eating? Jesus' point is not they were involved in sinful things. His point is, is they were doing the good things of life, but they weren't living in light of the judgment of God. Right? I want to come back to that because that, that hits hard when you consider that. All right, now we, we continue reading, verse 39, 39, excuse me, they were unaware until the flood came and swept them away. Now, now just for, for contextual clarity, the people that are swept away are swept away and died, okay? So this is not a good thing to be taken away. I think that's helpful then because in the rest of the text, come to verse 40, two men were in the field, one will be taken, if we're seeing the parallel there, if you're taken away by the water, you get killed by the flood. If you're taken away while doing some activity, the point is you're taken away in judgment. Continuing on, two, two women, verse 41, will be grinding. Probably a type of mill where you have like, you know, the, the stick is, uh, is going out on either end and so you have them pushing a mill around. It could be that they're rolling it back and forth, but you have two women on either side of the mill. One all of a sudden is taken in what? This is not the rapture. This is not as though you're taken to heaven. This is that Christ comes back and you're taken out. You're taken out in judgment. You're taken out by the justice of the Lord. This is why verse 42 says, therefore stay awake. The awake person doesn't get taken off guard, doesn't get taken in judgment. So this, this return of Christ is unknown to us and it is a sudden, the word we would use theologically is imminent. Okay, it's an imminent return. Does anyone know what imminence means? Okay, this is a, a corny example, but musical chairs. In musical chairs, you know, the music is playing and you're kind of like doing the loop. I remember playing like fifth grade, birth, fifth, fifth grade, five-year-old birthday party. I remember playing musical chairs. My friend David's house. I think I cried when I lost. Great birthday. You know the music is going to stop. You know it's going to stop. You're circling the chairs. And, and you know, you're like circling the chairs, especially like when you round the corner. You're like waiting. You're going slow, and the chair's over there. And so you're waiting, and then you jump over to the next chair, and then you circle around. You know what I'm talking about, right? The stopping of the music is imminent. 
It's going to happen. It's going to happen when you're not ready for it. It's going to happen at any point. It's imminent. That's the point of the return of Christ here. He is saying, no one knows, but it will be sudden, and it's going to be when you don't expect it. It's going to be like a thief in the night. He doesn't send a memo, hey, I'm going to be there at 2 p.m. He doesn't, well, he probably wouldn't be there at 2 p.m. anyway. He'd probably be there at 2 a.m. He doesn't tell you in advance he's coming. He shows up when you're not expecting it. It's imminent. He comes in judgment. I I think we could look at judgment. I'm going to separate it, but I think judgment means good and bad in in the scriptures oftentimes. We think of judgment as almost entirely negative. But if you've done a good job and your boss shows up, sometimes you get a bonus because he judges your work as worthy of reward. So we look in this text, and the Lord returns, and he says, be ready. I want to take you over to chapter 25 and show you this, this point being brought to life in the preaching of Jesus here. In chapter 25, he says, when the Son of Man comes. Okay, in verse 24, he said, be ready, because he's coming. And now he says, when he comes, he's going to sit on his glorious throne. Verse 32, before him will be gathered Whom? all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. He'll place his sheep on the right, goats on the left. Do you want to be a sheep or a goat? (laughs) You do want to be a sheep. Look at verse 34. The king will say to those on his right, that's the sheep, come you who are, what's that word there? Blessed. Drop down to verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, that's the goats, what are you? Then he'll say to those who are on his left, depart from me, you cursed. Okay, so, so very clearly, we have Jesus beginning to like tease apart what happens at his return. And this is why readiness is so important. When he returns, he's going to separate people, one from another, the sheep on his right, the goats on his left, the goats are going to be those who are cursed forever. The sheep are blessed forever. And so he makes a distinction between these two categories of people. Generally, we would think in terms of saved and unsaved. I think that does a little bit of damage. Maybe we should look in this text and say the ready and the unready. Being unready is the equivalent to being an unbeliever or an unsaved person. I think sometimes, especially in the U.S., where we are so calling, so often calling people to trust Christ or to pray and accept Christ, that a lot of times our lingo and our definitions get in our way. In other words, you may think that you are a Christian simply because you prayed a prayer at the age of nine. You may think that you are saved simply because you grow up in a Christian home and you go to church. Jesus Christ is not giving that type of security to you because it's a false security. He's calling you to be ready for his return because in that moment when he decides between the sheep and the goats with his perfect and omniscient gaze when he considers you, he is not going to be asking if you prayed a prayer He is going to be asking, do you know him? 
Do you live for him? And are you ready because you love him? Now, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not a gospel where we pray a prayer to receive it. It is a gospel that is received by faith. Let me just spend just a moment on that before we move back into the text. I am concerned that even within our churches, we have faith in faith. If I were to ask you the question, what saves you? I think appropriately we can say faith. But we don't mean by that that faith is, is what we do to get saved. Faith is how we respond to what Christ has done. Does that make sense? Like sometimes we, we, faith is not something powerful. Faith is trust in the powerful working of Christ. So when we consider what it means to be a saved person who's ready for the return of the Lord, we start with this thought. Do you truly believe in who he is and what he has done on your behalf? So let me back up in terms of all human history and see if I can give the gospel in just a few moments. The gospel of Jesus Christ is this, that we as a people and you as one of those people have rejected your creator and your king, who you owe your full life and all allegiance. You have done this from birth onward. And despite the fact that you may not think it that serious, God says it deserves eternal punishment in the lake of fire. And that is where we all deserve to be. But Jesus Christ, God's son, was sent by God, who in love planned your redemption through the death of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life to replace your imperfect life. He died as an innocent man to save guilty men and women. So that those who trust in his life and death and resurrection could be saved and redeemed to love him and live for him in eternal joy. And right now, you trust him is the response to the work of Christ you must have to be ready for his return. You must give your heart to love him to be ready. I want to take you back to that consideration of Noah as I, as I finish up that gospel point because I think it, it turns us full circle back into the text. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating. This afternoon, I hope you feel guilty when you take a bite of lunch. I don't really want you to feel guilty, but I do want you to be thoughtful. Eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. The point is not these are wicked people. The point is they were busy people. What were they doing? The things necessary for life and regenerate, like life and generation. I was going to say regeneration just kind of slips out. That is, what do you need to do to preserve your life? Generally speaking, eat and drink. What do you need to do to preserve, in terms of humanity, our existence? Marriage stuff, right? So, so what are they doing? They're doing the important things in life as measured by someone who just lives this life. Meanwhile, God is summoning them to divine rescue in his ark of grace. And they have no ears to hear Noah, who's identified as the preacher of righteousness. 
He's calling them to repentance. He's calling them to God's grace. He's calling them to salvation. And they're too busy with life. They're too busy with marrying. They're too busy with giving their sons and daughters away. They're too busy with groceries and food and work. They're too busy with stuff that's good stuff. But it's just stuff of this life. Jesus is is the counterexample of so many of these ways where we like took a left turn when God offered us a turn to his side of righteousness. When he's in the middle of the wilderness and he's being tempted and Satan says, you want something to eat? Jesus says, man does not live by bread alone. That was the lesson Noah's people needed to hear. What does man live by? Where does life come from? It comes from God. And if you have the choice of God's life-giving word or, or eternal food from Walmart, what would you pick? If you're normal and human, give me food from Walmart is the common human reply. Keep my life going. Give me health. Give me a job. Give me groceries. Give me children. And I want to see them happily married and well-educated. But I, that's, if you give me those things, I'm satisfied. And God in heaven is saying, no. It is with me that satisfaction lies. Now, isn't this what Psalm 73 preaches to us? Isn't this what Jesus means when he says, if you gain the whole world, but lose your soul, what does it profit you? Noah's people are winning the world, not knowing that their souls are in desperate and eternal risk. And the door to the ark closes, and their fate is sealed. They're busy about everything that matters for this life as judgment is coming for them. And they're all, save eight, taken away in judgment. That's Jesus' illustration. He's not trying to say, man, look at these pagans. Look at these evil people watching trashy movies, getting drunk every night, living with orgies and all this stuff. He's saying they're busy, but not ready. So look at the text again. Two men will be in the field. They're working. They're not at a party. They're not doing sin. They're working. Two women grinding. They're they're just they're getting food for their families. You see his point, right? They're busy doing good things, but they're not ready for the sun to come back. Verse 42. So stay awake. That's a command. That's imperative. Stay awake. You don't know when the Lord is coming. Verse 43. Once again, the person who's unready, bad stuff happens to him. You know this, that if the master of the house had known what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake. And the point being, and if you're not ready for Christ, he's about a welcome sight as a thief is. Not welcome. Not, you're not excited to see the Son of Man if you're not ready for him. 
Verse 44, therefore, you also must be ready. So as you're just kind of walking through the text with me, just kind of a couple simple observations. His return is imminent. He is returning in judgment. And that's both good and bad, isn't it? If you're a sheep, blessed forever. You're a goat, for how long? You're cursed forever. So be ready. Look at the last line of verse 44. Therefore, must, you must be ready. Again, the same imperative there. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. We're going to talk about readiness all through chapter 25. So let me just summarize a couple ways that I think these texts push what it means to be ready. First, I think he's assuming readiness means you truly are loving him and believing in his work. Like you're his, you're his sheep. You truly trust in him. If that's the case, then there's a godliness he expects of you. Right? Like you're like him. You're godly. You care more about the word of life than you do the loaf of bread. You're a person who has this character. You are diligent in serving his people. I, maybe it's just the, the modern Christianity, but I, I feel like the consumer-oriented church has a hard time calling people to service that's not glamorous. Listen, if, if the reason you serve is to flash a picture on Instagram of how much you love Jesus, you're not serving Jesus. But if there are poor people, in our, and I don't mean poor financially, but people in our church who are suffering, and you don't like them, and you find yourself ministering to them, that's, a, that's an outflow of love for Christ. And I think we've confused the two. That the person who's taken selfies while raking leaves in Grandma Jones's yard somehow thinks that they have stacked up oodles of wealth in eternity. And I think we're going to be surprised at the incredible reward of people we don't even know what they're doing. Because they serve without expectation. They serve not for glamour, but for love for God's people. In the quiet mornings, they pray for the church. With grace, they respond to unkindness from others. They devote themselves to encouraging others with their words rather than being the center of conversations. They find opportunities to help the downtrodden to strengthen the weak in faith, to challenge the struggling in sin. And they love the people of God by giving away their lives for their sake. That person is rich in heaven. Are you devoted to God? Are you diligent in serving his people? And do you have the very character of God? Maybe I could just say simply, they live with a vibrant, life-transforming faith that these words are true. And Jesus is coming back, and they know it in their soul. This is a three-generation pastor point I'm making. My pastor, his name is David Auckland. He's a sweet, sweet man. He's with the Lord now. I remember him preaching multiple times. The first time he came to the church, he was preaching a series through Revelation. And at that point, he was like 65. And he's an incredibly good expositor. And I remember him saying, Jesus is coming back in my lifetime. And I remember thinking, you don't have much longer. 
But he would often say that, and he'd say, you know, I remember my pastor saying Jesus would come back in his lifetime. And I think the expectation of those who walk with the Lord is he's coming soon. He's coming soon. A ready person loves the Lord and believes in him, looks like him in his character, loves his people by serving them, and is devoted to living by the word. Is that you? Are you ready? I think there are times in your life where the question of why you do what you do, you know, why do you, make it say this way, why do you discipline your children? Why do you send them to schools that you send them to? Is it so that you have good children? Or is it because you love Jesus? Why do you, why do you forgive your spouse when they hurt you for the umpteenth thousandth time by saying the unkind thing they always say? Is it because you care about your marriage or you care about the Lord who is pictured by your sweet love for your spouse? This passage reminds us with the example of Noah particularly that when we get our eyes off the coming of the Lord and living for him, we can be very busy but not ready. If the Lord is the why of what you're doing, you're ready. Is he your why? See why you're doing what you're doing. Do you, are you devoted to him? Do you love him? Are, are you filled with desires to please him? When you spend time in prayer, is it just like this checklist of I'm praying through this list. We got these four to pray for this week. I'm going to pray for them, 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 and that church. Did it. Or is it like, man, I am speaking to the living God. And he's listening. And his son is coming. Coming as a soul thirsty for his presence spiritually, eager for his return. As a, as a church family, this week, let's get ready. I don't know if I should say I hope to see you next week or I hope not to. Don't you hope Jesus comes back? Make sure you're ready. Make sure you're living for him, living in his word, and living with, with his desires moving you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this sweet reminder that your son is coming soon. And when he comes and gathers us to himself, we will be rewarded for every faithful work, for every faithful word. We'll be rewarded for the sufferings. And as our songs say, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. We know that this is true, and so this passage reminds us that it is not in vain that we labor. It is not without hope that we suffer. It, was, it is not without the expectation of reward that we live for you. We know that you are coming, and with you the army of angels, and you will stand against the nations who oppose you, and you will divide the sheep and the goats Lord, we are eager from the day when righteousness will reign. We long for your return. Lord, we know that we live in a world that's not ready. We have neighbors and loved ones who, if you were to come back today, would be numbered among the goats. As those who deserve, like us, eternal judgment, but unlike us, are not covered by the forgiveness of Christ. Lord, I pray that you would save people so that they might be ready for the son's return. 
Lord, awaken up this city from its sleep. Because when the sun returns, there's going to be people who are busy, gathering groceries, going to work, spending time with family. But they are not ready for the sun to come home and gather his people and to judge the nations. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be faithful and faith-filled to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, if there's any in this room that don't trust in the life of Jesus Christ and his obedience to you, they don't trust in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross to take the place that they deserve to have of dying under your judgment. If there's any who have not trusted in the life-giving resurrection of Jesus Christ, Lord, today, through the Holy Spirit, would you awaken their heart to trust in Jesus Christ with all the trust they have that they might receive forgiveness from their sins. Father, we are eager for your son to return. And even so, we pray that we might be faithful until he does. Help us to be ready, eager, desiring, and faithful until he breaks through the clouds with a trumpet and a shout and his foot touches the Mount of Olives and breaks it in two and he goes to war against the nations. Lord, help us to be ready. In Jesus' name, amen.